We pick up with King David, who is now the undisputed king of Israel. No longer are there any rivals. Saul is dead. Ishbosheth, his son, is also dead. The entire Jewish nation is united under King David's rule. But before him lay several very important responsibilities. Of course, the various Philistine and Canaanite tribes are going to continue to be a pest. And in order to create lasting, enduring peace and stability, David's going to have to subdue and quiet them. So that's number one. But even more importantly, David is going to need to corral the various tribes of Israel who were formerly loyal to Saul and to Ishbosheth, and now they are committed to him. But many of them, while they have nominally pledged their fealty to David, many of them are still wary of the new king. They may be even a little bit suspicious of him. And of course, the hesitation to embrace him is compounded by the recent assassination by David's general, by King David's general Yoav, where he assassinated the general of Saul and Ishbosheth, Avner, who had recently joined the ranks of David's camp, and that raised the suspicions of all those who were previously loyal to Saul. Now, on the onset of his rule, David is going to set out to try to accomplish these tasks, and he begins with the conquest of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a stronghold of a Jebusite tribe. The Jebusites, the Yavusim, they're one of the seven Canaanite nations. And that was the only stronghold that was not yet fully conquered by the preceding generations. Now, why did David make this his first priority? So there's a few reasons given. For one, there was a tradition amongst the Jewish people that there's going to come a time where there's one king of Israel, undisputed, and they're going to be the ones to complete the conquest began 380 years prior by Joshua, complete the conquest and finally get Jerusalem, which is going to be the centerpiece and the focal point and the capital, and of course the home of the permanent temple once it's conquered. And therefore, everyone's waiting for this king. Saul, his reign is short-lived. David is now the king. And he sets out to accomplish that. That's one reason given. A second reason given why David now pursues conquest of Jerusalem and moving his capital from Hebron, from Hebron to Jerusalem, is that David previously, he was the king of Judah, whereas Saul was the king of Israel. Most of the tribes were loyal to Saul. Now David is trying to pivot from being merely the king of Judah to being the king of all of Israel, of all the Jewish people, and therefore he finds it appropriate to make his capital in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the border. Half of it is under the tribe of Judah, half of it is under the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Saul. And as an effort to try to reach out and to have a more centrally located capital, to show that David is now the the king of all of the Jewish people, he wanted to conquer Jerusalem and establish it as his capital city. Eventually, he conquers the fortress of Jerusalem. He renames it Ir David, the city of David. His legend continues to grow, and he builds alliances with various other kings. He erects for himself a magnificent palace. He marries various concubines. In the end, David ends up with 18 wives and bears many children. And of course, as king, David continues his assault on the primary enemy combatants of the Jewish people at the time, the Philistines. Now, the Philistines, they're on the heels of a major military victory. They had recently defeated Saul and prompted him to commit suicide. They killed his children, and they were fearful of this new king, David. He's now uncontested, and they're also alarmed by his swift conquest of the seemingly impregnable Jerusalem, and they decide to march and attack David's new capital. So David consults with God. How does he consult with God? He speaks to the high priest of the Kohen Gadol, and the Kohen Gadol has the Urim Vitumim. This is a special part of the Choshen. It's in the flap of the Choshen. There's a special way 
that the high priest can communicate to God. God gives the answer. Will we be successful? Will we be victorious over the Philistines? David is assured that they will. And he encounters the enemy, destroys them. They go fleeing. They abandon even their precious idols, which are promptly burned. The Philistines quickly regroup. They attack again with a much larger force. And this time, God tells David to utilize a military tactic, circle behind them, disguise the sound of the marching troops. And once again, David routes the enemy and a degree of peace and stability reign. Finally, in an attempt to solidify the stature of Jerusalem as the capital and as the holiest city, David undertakes the effort to transport the Ark of the Covenant, the Aron Habris, the most holy of the vessels of the tabernacle, and to bring it from the place where it was staying, a place called Baalei Yehuda. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite go as planned. Just to backtrack a little bit here, the Ark has had somewhat of a long history prior to this episode. In chapter fours, chapters 4 and 5 of Samuel, it tells, this is even before Saul is king, uh, the Jews sought an ill-advised military encounter with the Philistines. And in order to help boost their chances, they decide to bring the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the Arona Bris, with them to battle, and hopefully that will bring merit to their efforts. Unfortunately, the battle didn't go as planned. And the Philistines, they win the battle, and they kidnap the Ark. And they proceed to destroy the tabernacle, which was in Shiloh, and it was there for 369 years. So this is a terrible, multi-pronged tragedy. The Jews lost a terrible battle, tabernacles destroyed, Ark has been kidnapped. Devastating news. Now, at the time, Saul was a young man, and he was sent as the messenger to go tell Eliah Cohen, Eli the Kohen, who was the leader of the Jewish people. He was the, he was the prophet. He was the judge. At the time, he's 98 years old. Go break the news to him gently. He tries to break the news, and he tells him one item after another, terrible things that happened to the Jewish people. He tells him that the ark was kidnapped, and Eli dies in shock. And Samuel, at the age of 41, takes over the reins of the Jewish people. So now the Ark, at this point in time, is in the hands of the Philistines. And as soon as they take possession of it, terrible things start happening to them. So for one, they decide to march the Ark triumphantly and bring it to their pagan temple and to place it right next to their idol and to show, look, our idol conquered God. That was their plan. Next day they wake up and their idol has been decapitated and is missing its arms. And that was only the beginning of the terrible things that happened to them. All the Philistines were struck with a severe illness. It began as painful hemorrhoids, and it continued with mice that infiltrated them through their rectum and entered their intestines and caused havoc. Obviously, that's a terrible, terrible thing. Many of them people, many of them actually died. So the tribe that had the ark, they say, this is all because of the ark, because we started up with God, we don't want the ark, and they pass it off to a second Philistine tribe. And the same thing happens. And throughout all the Philistine tribes, there's rampant illness and death. And after several months, the heads of all the Philistine tribes, they get together, they have a convention. What to do? What are we going to do about this problem? So eventually they decide, we're going to send it back to the Jews, along with sacrificial offerings to atone for our sins. So they take five golden statues of mice and five golden descriptions, depictions of their hemorrhoids. What, what that is exactly is talked about by the various commentators. They put it on a wagon. On that same wagon, they put the ark and they're going to send the, this whole package to the Jews and maybe that will solve the problems. But because they weren't really believers, they decided to make a test. Are our troubles really because 
of the Jews, really because of the Ark, really because of God? There's only one way to find out. We're going to make a test. So they take two cows that are nursing, and they separate them from their calves. The calculation behind that is, if you have a nursing cow, it's never going to abandon its calf unless it's compelled to by God. So they take these two cows, and they connect it to the wagon. And they send the wagon off, together with all the offerings, together with the ark, without any guidance. Let's see what happens. If it goes to the Jews, we know it's because the Jews will return them. If not, we'll take back our gold and take back the ark and find a different solution to our dilemma. And the verse tells what happened. The men did so. They took two nursing cows and tied them to the wagon and secured the calves at home. They placed the ark of Hashem on the wagon, along with the box and the golden mice and their images of hemorrhoids. The cows set out on the direct road, on the road to Bet Shemesh. On a single road did they go, lowing as they went. They did not veer right or left. The governors of the Philistines went behind them until the border of Bet Shemesh. So they're following and they see it's just, it's just going on its own. And it starts marching into the camp of the Jews. And the Jews, to their delight and to the surprise, they see these two cows sauntering in there into town bearing gifts, golden gifts, the Ark of the Covenant. And once again, in this bizarre and miraculous story, the Ark is back in Jewish hands after this brief episode when it was kidnapped. Now, with Jerusalem firmly in King David's hands, he decides to transport it again, this time to Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of people gathered to witness this historic, momentous event to partake in this transport. And the procession is one of, of joy, of ecstasy, of jubilation. There's dancing, there's singing, there's all kinds of musical instruments. But amid the joy, a horrific tragedy struck. And the reason why is because David made some serious, critical blunders. Like the Philistines, he chose to have a wagon transport the ark instead of having people carry it. And we know that the ark had two poles, two staffs in it, that are meant to be, it's meant to be carried on the shoulders of the Kohanim and the Levim, the Kohanes and the Levites. David put it on a wagon like the Philistines had done, which was one mistake. In addition, he didn't use Kohanim and Levim to transport it. And finally, David seemed to have shown the ark less respect than the Philistines because he guided it, whereas the Philistines, they believed, so to speak, a little bit more, and they allowed the ark to guide itself. And as a result, things really went wrong, as we'll see. Now, the Talmud asked the question, what did David do wrong? Why, why did such a thing happen, the tragedy that's about to unfold? Why did it have to happen? What, what was David's mistake? And Talmud says, that his mistake was his characterization of the Torah. David writes in the book of Psalms, Zemiros hayulichu kecha. Your laws, the laws of God, were a song for me. And the laws is, the law is not a song. The laws are strict. They're rigid. There's no like flexibility. It's not a beautiful song. It is beautiful, but to a certain degree, David didn't properly convey the value of Torah and as a result, his punishment was that a law that everyone knows, even school children know, that you're supposed to carry the ark manually, he forgot, a travesty and a tragedy happened. Along the way, the ark sitting on top of the wagon, it seemed like it was stumbling and it was toppling over. And someone went to grab it to save her from falling on the ground. Second, he touched it with his own bare hands, which you're not supposed to do. He died on the spot. And this whole party, this whole cavalcade is now shrouded in mourning. And David decided that we did something wrong. He diverts the ark, doesn't bring her to Jerusalem quite yet. He waits for three months. And again, David renews the procession, again with great fanfare, with dancing and with singing. And finally, the ark is restored and returned to Jerusalem safely. Such an amazing celebration. Everyone's there to celebrate. David 
decides to do something really dramatic over the top and to give something to all the participants of this procession, lines them all up. Every man, every woman received a loaf of bread, a hefty portion of beef, and a bottle of wine to celebrate this. David returns to his palace. And his wife, Michal, the daughter of Saul, she confronts him. And she criticizes him. And she says to him, you're the king of the Jewish people. You're a king. But how did you behave? You behave like any Joe Schmo. You're dancing wildly. You're jumping ecstatically. You're celebrating. You're dishonoring your office. That's what she tells him. And David responds to her with some pointed words. He says to her, this is exactly why your father is not the king and I am. I'm here to serve God and God alone. And my office, it's not its own platform outside of God. It's just the way that I can best serve God. And therefore, when there's this joy of the pride of the Jewish nation, the ark made by Moshe, this is the most important vessel of, of, of the temple. When it's being moved, when it's being brought to travel, you have to show the nation as my role as the king as the heart of the Jewish people, is to show them how to celebrate it. And that's my job. And therefore, I'm there to guide the people, and that's my role. Your father believed that his kingdom was more than just the service of God. It was something that he had on his own. And therefore, he was not worthy to maintain in God's eyes. And the episode concludes that as a result of her critique of David, she had no more children until the day she died. Either it means that she had no more children, or it means she had one more child, but that was the day she died. She died in childbirth. With Jerusalem secure, with the ark in Jerusalem, David becomes desirous to complete the ultimate legacy and destiny of the land to build a permanent temple for God. How can I live in a palace of cedar wood while God's ark is in a tent? David wonders. And David consults the prophet. Ask God, is it okay? Is it fortuitous? Is it proper for me to build the temple for God? And God responds, you will not build a temple. However, your sons will. So even though God tells him you can't build a temple, God softens the blow by telling him, but your sons will. And in addition, he tells him, your family will forever be the family of Jewish monarchy. From this point forward, God God assures David, there's no more legitimate kings that are not your direct descendants. The Hasmoneans, for example, and they were kings of the Jewish people for a century. And they started off, at least, as one of the great families of the Jewish nation. But every single member of this family was assassinated. And the obvious question is why? And a family that did so much, that brought us the Hanukkah miracle, that was the the high priests, the the lay leaders, the inspirational warriors that led the Jews in warfare and kicked the Greeks out. Why did they all die? Why were they all eventually assassinated? And the Ramban, he says, because they weren't legitimate kings. To be a legitimate king in this prophecy that God conveys to David, this prophecy we're told, there's only one line, the Davidic line, that is legitimate kings. Everyone else, they're not legitimate. If they're not legitimate and they want to take the throne anyhow, it's not going to end out end up well for them. Of course, the family of David continues. It goes through Hillel, for example. We know Hillel was a direct descendant of King David. And the family of Hillel is the family of the Nasi, which was the stand-in for a king when the Jewish people did not have a kingdom, and that lasted for centuries. And of course, we are waiting for the final king of the Davidic line, Messiah, to come back and restore the Davidic monarchy. Now, why was David not allowed to build the temple? So the book of Chronicles, David tells Solomon that you're going to build a temple. I can't because I spilled too much blood. Now what this means, it's interesting. There's a few different interpretations as to why David's bloodshed disqualified him 
from being from being the one who built the temple. According to some, it's because what does the temple stand for? The temple is a place of repentance. The temple is a place of peace, of forgiveness. War, bloodshed, they conflict with the essence of the temple. And therefore, even though David is one of the great heroes of Jewish history, and he's a great tzaddik, and all his wars were justified still, he's a warrior, he's got blood on his hand, he's not the right one to do it. Let his son Shlomo, Solomon, be the one. But alternatively, there's a second explanation to this point. David's wars were wars for God. And therefore his bloodshed, even though bloodshed is horrific, but bloodshed in a mitzvah, that's in fact a great mitzvah. And therefore what God essentially is telling David, it's not that you don't have the merits to build the temple, is you have too many merits to build a temple. You're too righteous because of all your bloodshed. And therefore, if you're the one who is tasked with building the temple, the temple is going to have your merits baked into its walls. And therefore, if the Jewish people sin, and if the Jewish people are worthy of just being of being destroyed, I won't be able to destroy their temple and spare them because their temple, if it was built by you, is going to withstand forever. And therefore, there's going to come a time in history where the Jewish people will need to be punished severely and I'll have no alternative but to punish them. Now, we know after the temple was destroyed and was rebuilt and was destroyed again, the Talmud tells us is that it's actually a blessing that God destroyed the temple, even though it's a very sad episode in Jewish history. But, says the Talmud, Shafach Hamaso al-Eitzim ve'avanim. God spilled his wrath on stones and on wood. There's a certain degree of a blessing that we could offload our sins and our destruction to the temple and have our nation continue. If David was the one who would have built the temple, the temple would have been impregnable, impossibly destroyed, and our nation would have suffered. Now, even though David is rejected, he prepares a song to celebrate it when it eventually happens. And thus the song to be posthumously sung when Shlomo Melech, when King Solomon builds the temple, is composed by David, Mizmor Shir Chanukas Habayis LeDavid, a song for the inauguration of the house of God written by David. And this was a song that David prepared that the Levites will sing on the day that the temple was inaugurated. And actually, it was even better. Because not only was this song sung on the day that the temple was inaugurated, every single morning before the daily sacrifices, the Levites would sing this song. It's a song composed by David, Mizmar Shir Hanukkah Sabayas, before any of the activities of the temple were done. And in fact, every day today, in our Shachar's prayer, we also recite this amazing chapter, chapter 30 in the book of Psalms. David's successes continued. He triumphed over various adversaries, the Philistines, of course, the Moabites, many other kingdoms that became his tributaries, and he further consolidates his reign, And even though Saul was, when he was alive, David's arch nemesis, David pledges to show mercy and love to Saul's remaining descendants. The book of Samuel continues with maybe the most disturbing episode of them all, uh, certainly one of the most problematic episodes in David's life, the story of David and Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba. And if you just read the story on the surface, it seems pretty damning for David. He is on the rooftop and he sees a woman, a married woman, bathing. He desires her. He pursues her. He takes her. He sleeps with her. He impregnates her. And then he has to deal with her husband. Her husband's still alive. Not only is her husband alive, her husband is a soldier fighting for David in all the wars that he is undertaking. What does he do? 
he calls Uriah Hachiti, the husband of Batsheba, he calls him home. And in order to remove any rumors about her pregnancy, he tries to convince Uriah to go visit his wife. And if Uriah would go visit his wife, then her pregnancy would be attributed to her husband and the scandal of David's involvement with Batsheba would not be revealed. The problem is that Uriah repeatedly refuses to go be with her. How can I go be with my wife when my comrades are in the middle of waging a war? So then David decides, he instructs his generals, go send Uriah back to the battlefront in a situation where he will undoubtedly be killed. And that is indeed what happened. Uriah is killed. After the mourning period is concluded, David marries Bathsheba, and she bore a son for him. And the story continues that the prophet, Nathan, is sent by God to speak to David. And he tells him, there were two men in the city. There was a rich man, and there was a poor man. And the rich man had many, very sheep, very many sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing. He had one small sheep that he had acquired. And he raised it, and he grew up together with him. It ate from his bread and drank from his cup and lay in his bosom. It became like a daughter to him. The visitor came to the rich man and wanted dinner. And the rich man, even though he had so much cattle and livestock and sheep, he didn't want to take from his own stock. So he goes to the poor man's backyard. He takes the sheep, the sheep that was so beloved to this poor man, the only thing that he had in his life, he takes it and he slaughters it and he offers it as supper for his traveler. And Nathan asked David, what should I do about this? So David gets very riled up and he says, I promise any man who does this deserves to die. He has to pay fourfold for his sheep because he did this deed. He should have no pity. And then, of course, Nathan turns the tables and says, Atah Ish, you are this man. Hashem said to you, I'm going to make you the king of Israel. I'm going to save you from Saul's hand. I give you the house of the Lord. I give you the wives of your Lord, of your previous king of Saul. I gave you the house, I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. I gave you everything. Why have you scorned the word of Hashem, doing what's evil in my eyes? You struck Uriah the Chiti with the sword. You take his wife and you have him killed. And as punishment, the prophet tells David, your sons will be killed. There's going to be rebellion and your, your wives will be unlawfully taken from you just like you did to Uriah. Now, just parenthetically, it's an interesting approach that the prophet takes with David. He doesn't attack him directly. He shows him like a straw man, someone else that he could judge independently. And then he says, okay, you just judge yourself. It's interesting, the Baal Shem Tov, many, many millennia later, he said this is actually how God judges people. When God judges someone for their deeds, he presents it to the, to the person as someone else's deeds and says, okay, you judge that person. And whatever verdict the person themselves renders on this hypothetical person, that is what the punishment that they, that they get, which is why we are encouraged to always judge favorably because if we judge other people favorably, in fact, we're judging ourselves favorably. That's the parentheses, just an interesting takeaway from this, from this episode. Now, immediately after this, this uh, verdict was given and the punishments were, were, were told to David, the son that Bathsheba bore to him became ill. David prays, David cries, David fasts, David tries to repent and nothing helps. The baby dies. No one wants to tell him what happened. Everyone's scared to be the bearer of bad tidings. Eventually, David understands what happened. The baby died and he goes over to pray and tell God that he accepts God's decree. And afterwards, God granted David and Bathsheba another son, David's most famous son, David's successor, Solomon, who's going to be known as Shlomo Melech, King Solomon. That's the story if you read it quite simply. 
Now the Talmud tells us in the book of Shabbos on page 56a, quite simply. Amar Abshmul Bar Nachmani, the great rabbi said in the name of Yochanan, Kal Haomer David Chata, whoever says David sinned, Eino Ella Toe. That person who says that David sinned is nothing but mistaken. So according to the Jewish traditional understanding of this story, the perspective that we have adopted is that David did not sin. Now that doesn't mean that David did nothing wrong. All it means that he didn't sin according to the strict letter of the law. If you read the story, it seems like David did two things wrong. Number one, adultery. Number two, murder. That's what the plain reading of the text would make you think. According to the Jewish tradition, David did not technically commit murder. David did not technically commit adultery. Why? So the first reason is because every soldier in David's army, before they would go out to war, they would grant their wives documents of divorce. They would divorce their wives. And there's a very important reason why they did this. Because if a soldier goes out to war and is missing an action, which is unfortunately quite prevalent in wartime, we don't know what happened to him. Is he dead? Is he alive? Is he kidnapped? Is he Where is he? No one knows. Was he buried in a mass grave? No one knows. Well, what happens to his wife? In Jewish law, a married woman, unless there is ironclad evidence that her husband is dead, she is what's called an aguna. She is not allowed to marry anyone else. So in order to prevent that, David's soldiers would preemptively divorce their wives before war. And if they come back healthy, they can remarry. But technically, when the soldier is out in battle, the wife is unmarried. And therefore, because Uriah was out in battle, his wife Bathsheba was unmarried, David did not take a married woman. In addition, David did not technically commit murder. Why? Because Uriah was actually guilty of a capital offense in his conversation with David. Not only does he disobey David's direct command, but he also commits a capital offense by showing disrespect to David. Because when he's speaking about his commander, Yoav, he calls him my lord. And to call anyone a lord in the presence of his majesty the king, King David, is technically a capital offense. Now, now David is actually allowed on the spot to execute him. And instead, he didn't execute him on the spot. He sent him to die honorably on the front lines. Yes, David did something that wasn't a thousand percent okay, but there was no technical sin. And the Talmud even probes further. Why did David, he did break the spirit of the law, but how did such a terrible thing happen to one of the giants of Jewish history? And the Talmud answers the book of Sanhedrin, page 107a, that David made another misstep. David wanted to be on the same level as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the only three ones that we say, Elokei Avraham, Elokei Yitzchak, Elokei Yaakov, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That is not assigned to anyone else. David says, I would like that. God says, I'm sorry, you have to be tested to get that. David says, bring it on. And the problem is that when someone voluntarily accepts upon themselves to be challenged, they don't have divine support to help them persevere and succeed and overcome that hurdle. And therefore, because David willingly asked to be tested, that's why he floundered. Now, it's interesting. We think, or a lot of people say that, well, David, you know, he was he, he was a sinner, which of course is technically mistaken, but we, there's an attitude that is attributed to David that he, he was a commoner like us. He had challenges like we have. We seem to put him on a pedestal with people like, with, with commoners like ourselves. So there's an interesting verse in the book of Kings, 
chapter 15, verse 5. Asher asa David et hayashar b'nei Hashem. David did what was proper in the eyes of God. Velo sar mikol asher tzivo. And he did not deviate from everything that God had commanded. Kol yimei chayav. All the days of his life. Rak bedvar Uriah hachiti. With the only exception of the episode of Uriah hachiti. Which seems to say that just like scripture is okay highlighting David's misdeeds, it also points out that this episode, and this episode alone, that was the only time where David actually did something that was against the will of God. And even though it wasn't technically a sin, for David on his level where he is holding on the spiritual totem pole, it was something that demanded a response, it garnered punishment, and it also resulted in David repenting endlessly. There's many, many examples in Psalms and in the Talmud where it highlights the stories and gives more detail to the story about what David did. So for example, in the aforementioned page 107a of the Book of Sanhedrin, it compares David to a market peddler. And he says to God, Shigios miyavin. Everyone makes mistakes. God says, okay, I forgive you. And then David says, okay, let's up, up the ante. Uministeros nakeni. Cleanse me from the hidden sins. God says, I forgive you. And continues David. Al yimshulubi az esam. Don't allow the rabbis in the future generations to analyze and lecture upon my sins. God says, I forgive you. Finally, David says, cleanse me. Nikesi Pesherov, cleanse me from a grave iniquity. Don't allow this to be written. Expunge it from the record. Remove the story from history. Let no one know about this episode. Let my repentance be so complete that it disappears. God says, I'm sorry. Can't make it disappear. Even the Yud, the letter Yud, that I took away from the word Sarai. Sarai, Sarah, the wife of Abraham, was originally called Sarai. But I took away the Yud and I replaced it with the Hey. That letter that I took away was complaining for generations until I gave it back to Joshua when Joshua was renamed from Hosea out of the Yud, called him Joshua. I can't remove part portions of the Torah. And finally, David asks, Forgive me for this sin entirely. And God says, I'm sorry, I can't forgive it to you entirely unless you accept upon yourself earth-based punishment, which David did. And for six months, David was stricken with leprosy and he lost the Shekhinah, he lost the divine presence, and the members of the Sanhedrin, the other Torah scholars, abandoned him. Which again shows that even though David did only one sin, and even David's sin was more minor. It wasn't a technical sin. It was only a sin because he did something that was, it was not refined. Still, David spent the rest of his life trying to repent. Psalm 51. A song for David. When Nathan the prophet came to him, when he came to Bathsheba. What's, this is an, this entire chapter dedicated to David's response and reaction to this story. Show me favor, O God, according to your kindness, according to your vast compassion, erase my transgressions. Abundantly cleanse me from my iniquity and from my sin. Purify me. Create for me a pure heart, O God, and a steadfast spirit renew within me. Cast me not away from your presence. I do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Hashem O Lord, open my lips and my mouth so that my mouth may declare your praise, and on, and on, and on. There's an interesting item to note about this story. We think about the book of Samuel and the book of Kings. When was that written? That was written contemporaneously. Under the auspices of the Davidic monarchy, which was an absolute monarchy. And it's interesting, despite the fact that this story sounds so bad for David, no one attempted to whitewash it or to erase it. 
this is keeping with the tradition of the Torah books that it doesn't engage in revisionist history and it's willing to highlight, not just to tell over, but to highlight the misdeeds and the missteps of its great leaders. There's another interesting episode from the Talmud, which is somewhat uh, humorous, how David was teased and was chided about this story. So David was, of course, the greatest Torah scholar of his time as well, which is one of the reasons why he's considered the exemplar of a Jewish leader, because he's a political leader, he's a military leader, and he's a Torah leader. So David is in the base Medrash. He's studying Torah with all the great giants of Torah of his time, and they're involved in studying and plumbing to the depths of the most complex, difficult portions of Torah. And someone from the back pipes up, some smart aleck, and says to him, uh, David, I have a halachic question. What is the law about a man who sleeps with a married woman? And, of course, this person is trying to embarrass David. So David responds, that person is executed with the method of execution called strangulation, called chenek. However, he has a portion in Olam Haba. That sin does not render him one who loses his eternal place in the afterlife. However, continues David, Hamal bin someone who whitens the face of his fellow publicly, someone who embarrasses someone publicly, like you just did to me, you lose your portion in Olam Haba. There's an interesting postscript to the story. It's brought down in the book of Shabbos on page 30a, and it's referencing a verse in Psalms 86. David is praying to God, make for me a sign for goodness and let my haters, let my detractors see and be ashamed. What's David asking? What's the sign that David wants? So the Talmud explains. David tells God, Master of the world, forgive me for that sin. God says, okay, done. Forgiven. Continues David. Make for me a sign in my life. Show me and show all my detractors that I'm forgiven for this. So God says, I'm sorry. In your lifetime, I'm not going to have this known to all. However, in the lifetime of your son Shlomo, I will make it known to everyone that I have forgiven you for the sin. So what happened? When Solomon, when King Shlomo, wanted to build the temple, so he wanted to bring the ark into the completed edifice, the temple, and he got to the door, and the doors closed themselves, and they refused to open. The gates cleave to each other, and Solomon is disallowed entry. So he starts praying, and he gives 24 prayers, and he's not answered. And he starts quoting from his father's psalms. Se'u sha'arim rasheichem. Lift, O gates, your head. V'hinasu. And be uplifted and be exalted. Pischei olam. Eternal entrances. V'yavom alachatavod. He's trying to talk to this to these gates. The eternal gates open up. So God come in. So the ark come in. And they try to swallow him. They don't, they don't listen. And he continues. It's God. The mighty God, allow him to come in. It doesn't work. Finally, he quotes a different verse. Hashem Elohim, God, Al Tashev don't reject the face of your anointment of your Messiah. Remember the kindness of David, and right away he's answered, and the doors of the temple open, and Solomon is able to bring in the ark. And everyone there is watching. And everyone saw exactly what happened. And right away, everyone knew, all of Israel knew that God had forgiven David for that sin. But David's life, even after the story, continues to be chaotic. In one dramatic and tragic story, David has a love triangle amongst some of his children. So one of his sons lusted after and raped one of his daughters and a second son of Shalom has the first son murdered, and his rumors abound that all of David's sons were killed, and Avshalom, David's son, becomes estranged from his father, 
and eventually tries to mount a rebellion that quite nearly succeeded in toppling David's kingdom and killing David. Now, Avshalom, we're told, is astonishingly beautiful, has meticulous hair, and has seemingly irresistible charm and mystique and charisma. And he travels the land. He plans his rebellion quite cleverly. He travels the land to every community. And of course, he's the prince. He's the son of King David. And everyone greets him. And he gathers the crowds. And he promises, I'm going to be a fair judge. You know, with me, you have someone who's always going to be fair with you as a judge. So his name and his popularity rises. And he devises a plan, travels to Hebron. And he decides to usurp the throne and maybe even kill his own father. And he coordinated quite cleverly. He didn't start the rebellion in one corner and try to conquer the rest of the land. He did a simultaneous announcement all over the land of Shalom, the son of David, is now king. And in Jerusalem, David finds out there is a coup. His own son is trying to take over his kingdom and to kill him and to kill his loyalists. And David decides to flee the city on foot with a band of those who are still loyal to him. David is wary of a civil war. He doesn't want Jews killing Jews. And he leaves without a fight. And even in this terrible state, David doesn't lose his faith. He even tells the someone who wanted to bring the ark with him in their uh, flight to refuge. They want to be the ark. He says, no, leave the ark in Jerusalem. Return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in Hashem's eyes, he will bring me back and let me behold him in his abode. And if he says thus, I desire you not, I'm prepared. Whatever I'm in the hands of God, whatever he decides, I'm going to accept. Again, there is another psalm to commemorate this horrific episode. Mizmor le David, a song for David, Bebarcho, when he is escaping, when he's fleeing, Mipnei Avshalom Beno, from Avshalom, his son. And the Tom says, wait a minute, a song for David? Your own son trying to usurp your kingdom? And you're forced to abdicate, or at least to escape the city on foot with a band of loyalists? This is a time for singing? It should read instead, Kinelet David. It should say, a lamentation for David. Why is David so positive? Why is he singing songs in response to this episode? And the Talmud answers that David was was able to find a silver lining even in this terrible episode. God told him through the prophet that you're going to have rebellion, your children are going to turn against you, and David his whole life is waiting for it. And similar to a, a debtor, someone who owes money to someone else. He knows that there's going to be a call from the collector. It's going to happen sometime. And once the call's over, even though it's terrible, but at least he found the positive message, the silver lining in the horrific cloud that, okay, at least I know that I was paid for this. I received this punishment and now I'm not going to get it again. So David, along with 600 of his followers, are fleeing along the way. There's another terrible episode where David's fleeing, and there's a man from Saul's family who's still bitter about David being king. His name is Shimei ben Gerah, and he starts cursing David as David is fleeing Jerusalem. And he starts throwing stones at David and all of David's men. Go out, go out, you man of bloodshed, you base man. Hashem is repaying you for all the blood of the house of Saul in whose stead you have reigned. He's telling him, you took over Saul's kingdom unjustly and now God's paying you back. And David's people say to him, should we just go kill him? David says, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't touch him. We're going to allow, we're going to absorb his taunting and perhaps, continues David, perhaps Hashem will see the tears in my eyes and Hashem will repay me with goodness instead of his curse this day. So they continue along the way and this 
individual, this malcontent, Shimi Megera, is walking along on the side of the mountain, continuously cursing and flinging stones towards him and throwing dirt at him. But David doesn't res- respond. Meanwhile, Avshalom, David's prodigal son, is now in Jerusalem, and he's filled a vacuum. And he's now assembling his supporters. And the majority of the nation now is swept in this tide, this movement, and this rebellion. Avshalom is now the king. And he has an advisor. His name is Achitofel. And Achitofel gives him advice. He says, listen, if you want to be your own king, you don't want to just exist in your father's shadow. You have to do something dramatic, something irreparable, something that shows to everyone that you're not just David's other hand. You're different. You have to sever your ties with your father. So he gathers all of his father's concubines and takes a public, there's a tent in public, has everyone there watching, goes in there with his father's wives, consorts with them, and now the rift between father and son is not fixable. But David had a spy in Avshalom's court, Hushai, and he was going to help David give him the information and also direct Avshalom in a way that this rebellion could be stamped out. So David is running away, and Avshalom is in Jerusalem, but so long as David lives, Avshalom cannot be the undisputed king. So what to do? So he has two advisors. He has Achitofel, who gives him one advice, and he has Hushai, who's acting as a fifth column, who's really loyal to David. He's a double agent. Achitofel says, listen, take 12,000 men, a relatively small army, chase down David's entourage, kill just David, and come back and you'll be okay. Don't attack the rest of them. We don't want to have uh, Jews killing Jews. Just go after King David, and that's it. Hushai says, no, this is a bad idea. You're going to lose. Your father is a very skilled warrior. He's going to anticipate the attack. He's not going to be with everyone else. You won't find him. He's going to hide. I have a better solution. Gather a huge army, all of Israel, with you at the head to show them that you're representing, you're not just hiding in them, you're not cowering in the back like a coward, you're leading your people. And go devastate David and all everyone who supports him. David's a traitor, you're the real king. And of course his hope is, once Avshalom is there with everyone else, he'll be captured and the insurrection will be quieted. Avshalom likes this suggestion. We're going to follow your advice. Achitofel is terribly depressed. The other advisor, he goes home and he commits suicide. And Hushai knows what the plan is. Avshalom is going to head a massive army. There's going to be a major showdown. And he quickly sends two messengers to David to tell him about Avshalom's plans. These messengers are being pursued by Avshalom's people. Thanks to the wife of Shimi Magir, to the wife of the person who was throwing stones at David, they managed to evade capture and they convey the message to David. David is now consolidating his supporters and his loyalists and they cross over the Jordan River. They're heading east. Avshalom is in hot pursuit with an enormous army. David splits his army to three. The people insist, David, you're the precious commodity. You stay far back from the front lines. We don't want you to join. And therefore, before the battle, David says, I'm not going to be there with you, even though normally he would. But he gives him very clear instructions. When and if you capture Avshalom, be gentle with him and don't kill him. There's a massive battle that ensues and the army of David triumphs. Avshalom tries to flee. He tries to escape on his horse, but his massive, magnificent, coiffed hair gets tangled in a bush. And the horse gallops away from under him, and he is there flailing about in the air, suspended from his hair. The Talmud says, because he was haughty, he was arrogant with his hair, tit for tat, he gets punished, he gets caught in his hair. Now one of Yoav's soldiers, one of King David's soldiers, he sees him, ah, there's, there's Avshalom. He is the usurper. And hearkening to David's orders, he just leaves him alone. He's gentle. He doesn't kill him. But he goes back to Yoav, to the general, and says to him, you know, I found, I found Avshalom. 
So Yov says, what do you do? Do you kill them, right? He says, no, well, well, David told us not to. What do you mean David told him? You got to kill him. He's the enemy. He goes there and together with his men, they throw spears, they stab Avshalom to death and they bury him in the forest. Eventually, David finds out they won the war, but he lost his son. He is consumed with grief. He is inconsolable. He mourns and he cries over his son and he begins his trek back to Jerusalem. Along the way, everyone realizes it was probably a bad idea to have gone against David. And they tried to make amends. Shimi ben Geira, the stone thrower, comes to beg for mercy. And David spares him and everyone else as well. There's going to be other rebellions David faced. For example, there's the terrible man named Sheva ben Bichri. He mounts another revolt. Yoav. David's general again is sent out to stamp out the rebellion. He besieges a city in which Sheva ben Bichri is taking refuge. And he tells the people of the town, listen, all I want is Sheva ben Bichri. All I want is to end this rebellion. Either give him to me, dead or alive, or I kill you all. The people didn't know what to do. Eventually, a woman, clever woman, came up with a plan. He's guilty of capital offense anyhow. They chop off his head, they chuck it over the wall, and the siege on the city ended. David's reign also saw the horrible famine that struck the land. For three years, it was a terrible famine, and no one knew the cause of this famine. So David again consults with God, and the Almighty tells him that this is the result of King Saul, your predecessor, he killed seven Givonim, seven Gibbonites. And therefore, because of that deed, because I didn't treat those strangers well, that's why the whole nation is, going to su- is suffering with this famine. You have to make amends, you have to appease them, speak to the Gibbonites, speak to the Givonim. So David calls in the tribe of the Givonim and asks them, what do you want? I'll give you gold, silver. How can we make amends for Saul's treatment of your people and his killing of seven of your men. And they say to him, we don't want gold. We don't want silver. We don't want innocent blood. We do want the blood of the guilty. Give us seven of Saul's descendants. We're going to publicly hang them in Saul's own neighborhood, tit for tat, Saul cuts seven of us, we'll kill seven of Saul's, and then we forgive you entirely. Of course, that is a demand of terrible cruelty, but David has no choice. He knows that the only way to end the famine and to save the rest of the Jewish nation is to comply. He has to select seven of Saul's descendants, hands them over, and for seven months, the bodies of Saul's descendants are hung and only thanks to the dedication of Ritzpah, who happened to have been the mother of two of the victims, only thanks to her were they untouched by birds or other predators. She stood there for six months, and sw- for seven months, and swatted away anyone that came to try to attack the body, try to protect their dignity, until they were eventually buried. And the Talmud brings the story, uh, elaborates upon the story, and says that David made a rule, a decree, from that point forward, any one of the Gavonim, any one of these people who comes to convert, we don't accept them. Why? Because our nation stands for three. There's three characteristics that are elementary, that are inherent, that are found by all Jews. Number one, they are Baishanim, they're bashful. Number two, they're merciful, they're Rachmanim. Number three, they do kindness. And therefore, someone who is cruel, Someone who's achzari, someone like that, and no part of our, of our nation. We don't want the people to be join us. They can't join us. The book of Samuel ends with several more wars that David fought, mostly with the Philistines, specifically with the relatives of Goliath. They were huge. They were imposing too. And other mighty forces. Eventually, David wins them all. And the Talmud tells us an interesting episode of David's death. Again, bouncing off the teachings in Psalms, in Psalm 
39. King David asks God, Let me know my, my end. When am I going to die? And God says to him, I'm sorry, I can't tell you when you're going to die. That's the one secret that no one knows. No one knows when they're going to die. But David persisted. Give me something about my end. Well, what's going to be a little bit of my end? Finally, God tells him, you're going to die on Shabbos. Now, David did not want to die on Shabbos. Because on Shabbos, if you die on Shabbos, your body is left unburied until after Shabbos. Because one of the laws is that you cannot deal with the burial of a body on Shabbos. You have to wait till after Shabbos. So David says, you know what? Let me die one, more, one day later, on Sunday. I'll be okay on Sunday. And God says to him, I'm sorry. There is a perfect amount of time allocated for every kingdom. There's the kingdom of David and there's the kingdom of Solomon. And even though he's your son, it's his own kingdom. I cannot allow your kingdom to overtake his kingdom by even one day. You can't die on Sunday. So David says, okay, well, let me die on Friday. One day early. I'm willing to forfeit a day for my son. And God responds to him by telling him, Tov yom bechatzarecha me'elef. One day of yours is worth more to me than a thousand. I'd rather have one day of your Torah than a thousand sacrifices that your son's going to offer. I am not willing to give up one day of your kingdom. So you have to die on Shabbos. So David says, okay, at least I know during the rest of the week I'm safe. If you know that you're not going to die, you're not going to die any other day, only on Shabbos, you're good to go. And every Shabbos, he would try, he had a policy. He's going to stave off death because the rule is if someone is totally immersed in Torah, they are not in the hands of the angel of death. They can't be touched by the angel of death. So every Shabbos for 25 hours, David did nothing but study Torah on a very deep level, uninterrupted. And that fateful day arrived. This is the day destined for David's demise. This is the day where David's going to pass away. But of course, he's studying Torah nonstop. And the angel of death comes and tries to grab him. But David doesn't stop studying for even a second. So what to do? So he goes to the backyard, to the orchard, and he climbs onto one of the trees and starts making crazy noises. David hears the noises and says, okay, I'll check out what's happening, but I'm not going to stop studying. I'm not going to fall for the trap. But he's studying and he's walking down steps and he trips. And he trips on the step. And for a second, he's trying to catch his balance. He stops studying for a second and the angel grabs him. Pretty dramatic story. I want to conclude with... Chapter 27 of Psalms. This is a chapter that we read every day twice in the month of Elul and the run-up to Rosh Hashanah and Kippur and the days that precede it. And I think this really captures who David was and how he related to God and how we are trying to draw inspiration from his words and his prayers and his Psalms and trying to kind of piggyback on his relationship with God and try to model our relationship with God after David. By David. Ledavid Hashem Orivi Hashem is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Hashem is my life's strength. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers approach me to devour my flesh, my tormentors and my foes against me, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army would besiege me, my heart would not fear. Though war would rise against me, in this I trust. One thing I asked of Hashem, that I shall seek, with that I dwell in the house of Hashem all the days of my life, to behold the sweetness of God and to contemplate in His sanctuary. Indeed, He will hide me in His shelter on the day of evil. He will conceal me in the concealment of His tent. He will lift me upon a rock. Now my head is raised above my enemies around me, and I will slaughter offerings in his tent, accompanied by joyous song. I will sing and chant praise to God. Hashem, hear my voice when I call. Be gracious toward me and answer me. In your behalf, my heart has said, seek my presence. Your presence, Hashem, do I seek. Conceal not your presence from me. Repel not your servant in anger. 
You have been my helper. Abandon me not, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Though my father and mother have forsaken me, Hashem, you will gather me in. Teach me your ways, Hashem, and lead me on the path of integrity because of my watchful foes. Deliver me not to the wishes of my tormentors, for they have arisen against me, false witness, who breathe out violence. Had I not trusted that I would see the goodness of Hashem in a land of life, hope to Hashem, strengthen yourself, and He will give you courage, el Hashem, and hope to Hashem. The Rambam writes in the second to last chapter of his Yad HaZarka that there's two Messiahs. There's the Messiah, the original Messiah, the first Messiah, and there's the second Messiah. The first Messiah is King David. The second Messiah is one of King David's descendants who is going to restore the Davidic monarchy, rebuild the temple, and bring back sacrifices and bring the world to its fulfillment. We've studied now about the first Messiah. May we merit to witness the reestablishment of the kingdom of David as we pray every day. And may we see the building of the temple by the second Messiah. May it happen speedily in our days.